This is the Education Gadfly Show. Partake in or not, right? On the one hand, you're like, uh, these grade-grubbing boys or men. Darn it. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Seth Gershenson. Seth, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Also joining us, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. All right. Seth is the Associate Professor of Public Administration and Public Policy at American University. And most importantly for this conversation, he's also author of Fordham's latest study, which is called Great Expectations. Seth, so excited about this study and excited to unpack it with you here. Let's talk all about that on Ed Reform Update. All right, Seth. So this study looks at the impact of teachers grading practices on student achievement in the short term and let's say medium term. And we came to you with this study idea in part because you've done some great work about teacher expectations, uh, looking at whether teachers expectations matter in terms of how kids do and student learning. It seems like this is one of those things that has been kind of a truism for a long time is something maybe we've believed that whether teachers believe in their students matters, but it's kind of hard to to show that, much less prove it. So let's start there. Let's talk about some of the previous research on this question around teacher expectations, how, how you and others have come at that. Yeah, so it's it's really hard to differentiate the relationship between teacher expectations and student outcomes because that strong association could really mean two different things. It could mean that there's a real causal effect of the teacher's expectations on student outcomes, or it could just be a correlation in the sense that teachers are picking up on the sorts of things that affect student outcomes. And so there's not really an effect there, but they're just sort of stating what we know about the students. Um, in a study with Nick Papa George at Johns Hopkins, we try to disentangle that by leveraging a really cool feature of a national data set where they asked two different teachers of each student about how far they thought that student would go in college. And then we used teacher disagreements to figure out the effect of expectations on student outcomes. So the idea was when teachers disagreed, somebody's wrong. And we can kind of use one teacher's expectation to control for all the other stuff that's going to affect the kid's outcome. And isolating all that other stuff, we can get the causal effect of, of the second teacher's expectation on the outcomes. And we find big effects um, on students' actual college graduation six years later. Those were high school teachers, 10th grade teachers we were looking at. And we find that there's real effects on what we ultimately care about, which is high school graduation and college graduation. Yeah, no, fascinating. So, and again, this is so, so maybe you're comparing the, te- the, the kid's English teacher to their math teacher and, and yeah. right in their views on this. But this is based on, on survey data. And so now uh, the question is, well, what about if you were able to look uh, and, and get a glimpse into teachers' grading practices, whether that might have some impact on student achievement? This has been done, as far as we know, maybe once before and at the elementary school level a while ago. You had some ideas about how to do it at the middle school and high school level. So let's talk about it. How'd you, uh, how'd you come after it? Well, the first problem is defining grading standards. So we have to come up with a way to identify who the tougher graders are and who the laxer graders are. Um, And for that, we basically take this idea that we can compare students' grades from their transcripts, from the report cards, to their scores on the end-of-course exams. And then since we know who their teacher was, we can look at all the kids for a given teacher and for that teacher's students compare the grades to the end-of-course exam scores. And then we can do that for every teacher 
And what we're going to see is that the relationship between the grades and the test scores is going to be different for different teachers. Now, the grades and the test scores should be different because they're measuring very different things. But the relationship between the grades and the test scores should not be different across teachers if all the teachers are grading in the same way on average. So in other words, right, you don't necessarily, we're not saying that if kids are crushing the test, those same kids should also be the same kids that get high A's in the class necessarily. Though, if you know, you would expect there to be some relationship. Yeah, that in there should general, be exactly. Right? There's, kids there's who do better some on tests are going to get higher but they're grades. Not, they're, they're not going to be perfectly measuring yeah. the same thing. Because grades might also look at things like effort. Uh, exactly. You also might have a kid who has a bad day on the test. And, you know, lots more goes into grading and we think that's okay. That's right. But again, the key thing is that that difference should be fairly similar across teachers if they're all using the same grading standards. And what and we find is they're not. Yeah. <laughs> and lo and behold, they are not. Yeah, they are, they are not at all. So what we specifically do is we focus on students who had a B in the class. And then we look at all the B students in a teacher's class and look at their average test score. And then we look at all the B students in the next class and look at their average test score. And we find that sometimes that average test score is way higher for the B students of Mrs. Apple than it is for Mrs. Banana. And what that means is that on average, the B students in one classroom are learning more than the B students in the other. And that's our, that's our main definition of grading standards. Now in the report, we do a lot of, we do a lot of different ways of defining grading standards just to make sure that the results are robust to how we do that. And they are, but, but we like this, this idea of looking only at the B students because there's going to be B students in almost all classrooms. If we looked only at the high end or only at the low end, there might be classrooms that don't have a lot of A's or don't, don't have a lot of F's or things like that. And what's fascinating is uh, not only do students learn more from teachers with these higher grading standards, and, and we should say this is an algebra one, which kids are taking either in middle school or in high school, but they actually learn more in subsequent years as well, which is you know pretty cool that we see this impact of teachers being willing to be tougher graders, which again might imply that they have higher expectations for what students can do, and that has an impact while they are teaching the kids and after the kids leave their classrooms. Also super interesting that when you do some descriptive look at this, you say, okay, it's interesting that the teachers that tend to be higher graders, tougher graders, tend to come from more selective colleges. Also, they tend to work at the middle school level, probably teaching kids who are higher achieving. They tend to be in lower poverty schools. And I thought this was fascinating. They tend to have more experience that the uh, that, that maybe perhaps over time teachers become tougher graders. <laughs> maybe that's uh, we could speculate on why that might be. I think that's super interesting. Any other big, uh, big findings that I left out there? No, I, th I think you hit it. The only other two things I would say is that the persistent effect on subsequent learning, I think, is really important because in a study like this, we're always worried about teaching to the test. And this really suggests that it's not teaching to the test. It's not a one-off thing that's happening. They're really changing kids' mindsets and changing kids' engagement with, with schooling that leads them to perform better down the road. The other big result that you didn't mention is that I guess it's a non-result in the sense that we find that this effect is happening for all students in all schools. And a lot of critics of high standards or, or higher grading practices are going to worry that maybe lower achieving kids or disadvantaged kids are going to be turned off to school by higher grading standards. And here we unambiguously find that, no, that's not happening, regardless of the type of school you're in, regardless of your past math performance, regardless of your demographic background, you benefit from higher standards. And that was across the board, all students, all schools. 
which is fascinating. Now, one, one thing that came up on social media and some of the discussion with some folks, you know, from a variety of backgrounds, including some journalists and others, is, is saying, well, are we sure that this is about teacher grading practices and not just about, you know, other behaviors or mindsets of the teachers? In other words, you know, couldn't it just be that better teachers have these higher grading standards and help kids reach these higher expectations. And, you know, so you can't, un, you know, sort of disentangle that from, you know, one little tiny attribute. It's not like if you just took any teacher and said, okay, well now just be a tougher grader right. that you necessarily get these positive outcomes. Yeah. And I, I mean, in some sense, I think that's sort of obvious, yes. um, but I think, I don't think that that sort of takes away from, from the point of the story here. First off, if you just flip the words in that sentence, part of being a good teacher is having high standards. So we're, you know, we are literally identifying a observable characteristic of what makes teachers effective. This is really useful for schools and districts because they have the data to compute these same definitions of standards that we did. They can identify who the effective teachers are using this type of, of standards measure. But I fully agree that sort of just saying, okay, give out worse grades, that's not going to help learning, right? But that's not what's happening here. The idea is that the teachers that are that are having higher grading standards, they're creating a culture of high expectations in the classroom. They're creating a culture of, we expect that you can do this, we know you can do this, and let's go do it. This is just a, a measure of good classroom practice that, that these teachers are using. And it's something that we can teach, we can help teachers improve and teach teachers in training programs and PD. Okay, that's probably the first thing you've said that I don't know if I agree with, right? Because I worry that there are just, and Mike, I know Mike's going to feel say something similar, right? I just worry that there are really strong incentives against tough grading in general. Yeah. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that, Seth? Are we pushing a boulder up a giant hill is what I guess what I'm asking here. No, I don't think it, I don't think it's a giant boulder, and I don't think the hill's that steep. If you're pushing a, a medium-sized boulder up a, a, <laughs> okay, all right, all right. a, a somewhat flat hill, I feel more um, optimistic now. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's it's tough, but I think it's doable. And I think the reason it's doable is the the point Mike brought up about the what happens as teachers gain experience. The bottom line is we see teachers' grading standards change over time, right? We know that they're malleable because they're they're getting higher standards as they uh, spend more time in the classroom. So we know it's malleable. A big part of this is just information, right? Teachers have no idea how strict or lax their grading standards are often, because even if they're talking about what grades they gave with their colleague and what grade their colleagues gave, they're not seeing their colleagues' underlying end-of-course exam scores, right? They're not able to sort of identify who's in the top quartile or, or top 10% of grading standards. So one easy thing to do would be what the energy companies do on our electric bills when they show us how much electricity our neighbors are using. We could easily, in schools, show our teachers where they fit in this grading distribution, real simple way. And I think even providing that simple information, it's not going to change everybody's attitudes and practices, but I think for a non-trivial subset of teachers, it'll it'll make them reevaluate how they're grading. So I think we could start, you know, low. That's a low cost thing to do. I love it. And and I do like, I like the energy bill analogy. Another one is, is with the opioid crisis that there, you know, that some insurance companies have tried to say to doctors, Hey, you may not understand it, but you are, you are prescribing opioids at a much higher rate than your colleagues. Mm -hmm. We have noticed that we are tracking that. And now, you know, as well. And when they did that, the prescription rates for those doctors went way down. Now, again, is that because somebody's looking over their shoulder or is it because they really had no idea, you know, and they, they were like, oh my God, you know, maybe I, I really am part of the problem here. 
So uh, the, these nudges are at least worth trying. I mean, now, yeah. and by the way, we sort of step back and think about the teacher effectiveness literature, where we know that teacher effectiveness varies greatly and teachers matter. But then you say, well, what are the observable things that we can nail down, say, on the front end, so we do a better job hiring effective teachers? It turns out very limited information, right? right? So, I mean, that this is something concrete that we can look at, that we can train, that we can tell people about. By the way, it might also be one reason why we have seen for a long time that in some studies, teachers from more selective colleges or maybe with higher verbal abilities are getting stronger results. It just may be that yeah. they themselves have experienced those higher expectations. They've been in classrooms that have had those higher expectations. And so, you know, you, you teach what you teach like you've been taught. And yeah. and so, it, it you know, especially for people who no fault of their own, maybe went through mediocre schools or maybe not so uh, high caliber colleges, they just don't know that, uh, you know, what kids are capable of. And so we've got to help demonstrate that to them. And I think that, again, is evidence that um, we can move the needle on teachers' grading standards, right? If if it if it varies with the type of college I went to, type of program they went to, uh, so I'm um, I'm I'm relatively optimistic about this. Now, all that said, you've got to have the data, which in this case means having end of course exams, which of course are going the way of the dodo bird in many states, uh, and then you've got to use the data. I mean, this is something where uh, you know even these teachers in in your study in our study. You know, we're talking about them. They don't know. They don't, they've never gotten this information, right, Seth? I mean, it's, it's buried somewhere in, in your database. It would be great to figure out a way to get that to the teachers themselves. All, All right. right. I feel thoroughly defeated by, uh, by both of your points. By and, that and, challenge. Yeah, right. well, and, and by Seth's uh, medium-sized boulder metaphor, which yeah. I have no response to. <laughs> okay. Well, come on. You got to try. You got to try, e- even if you end up getting uh, smashed by that boulder in the end. Uh, with that, we will uh, we will leave it there. Thanks so much, Seth, for coming on the show again. Seth Gershenson, Associate Professor of Public Administration and Public Policy at American University. Check out his fantastic new study called Great Expectations, which looks at a teacher grading practices and student outcomes. Appreciate you coming on the show, Seth. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. I tell you, Seth, such such a great author. Uh, so many studies now. <laughs> what a guy. Right? What, what a great guy. guy. He is. Yes. So proud. He was one of the emerging I know, education He was an early, scholars. I don't know what cohort he was. But uh, it, yeah, it was early. an early one. One or two, maybe, I think. Yes. Yeah. yes. He seems so young. He's uh, just grown up and flown the coop, you know, like they do. Doing so. great studies. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. No, I love it. Yes. And really interesting stuff. I don't know. Absolutely. Do you think that over time you were you became a tougher grader? Uh, no, I don't. No. I wish I, I could say that I had, but yeah. I do not. I think I became a little bit squishier because I felt some of that pressure that some yeah. of the interview teachers talked about uh, in the classroom. So yeah. anyhow. Pretty tough right off the bat. I don't know that I could back it up with any competent teaching, but yes. I, I was yes. tough. I had high standards in theory. Yes. All right. Well, good. good for you, Dave. Yes. 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 I'd give you a gold star, but that Thank would be great. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. All right, Amber, what you got for us this week? Uh, we have a new NBER study called Ask and You Shall Receive Gender Differences in Regrades in College. I love that they took the effort to have a nice <laughs> title. title. Right? Uh, yeah, I yeah. to go, guys. It examines the differences among men and women regarding their likelihood to negotiate whether that affects the chances that they will request and receive a regrade in a college course. Yeah, these and, just, and, just and, gender studies get kind of interesting. Sometimes. And are you not going to mention that one of the author's first names is Cher? 
I did not mention that, sir. Yeah. How cool is that? <laughs> uh, for instance, extant research shows that men are more likely to negotiate salary. We've heard that a lot. Yeah. Uh, that can contribute, presumably, to the gender gap and labor market outcomes. So the question here is, does a similar phenomenon play out in college when students receive low grades that maybe they don't agree with? Hmm. So analysts use letter grades of about 65,000 students from Colorado State University taught by about 3,700 faculty during the years 2010 through 2016. They find that there were about 6,225 grade changes made by instructors during that time. It's still less than 1%, okay? So it's not okay. like this huge. All right, among those changes, 95% of grades were adjusted upwards. <laughs> um, they find that although, this is the description I'm part. a little curious about yeah, the right, right. other 5%, 5% of kids were really mad. <laughs> yeah. uh, they find that although women make up around 54% of the grade records, they represent just 49% of the upward grade changes initiated by instructors. So that's the difference. That translates into another metric that finds that men were about 18.6 percentage points more likely than women to receive this upward grade change. They conduct a number of different empirical models, different control variables. They do multiple sensitivity analyses to control for things like whether these regrades were driven by a handful of instructors, stuff like that. They basically find that their key finding holds, which again, they are these robust gender differences in regrades with males more likely experiencing these grade changes. But we don't know things like, okay, whether their requests may have been made that and they didn't result in a change, right? So we don't have any data on that. Maybe males and females have similar propensities to ask. We don't know. Maybe they asked during, maybe the females asked during the semester. So that lowers the likelihood that they're going to ask later when the grades need to be turned in. So that's all the kind of stuff that we don't know, right? Yeah. Then they do all this other stuff to try to dig into mechanisms. Mm-hmm. All right. So one thing they do is they administer surveys to instructors and students. They ask them to re- recollect their prior regrade request. I'll, I'll stop here. This is getting long. What percentage, just a little break here. What percentage of students do you think report that they have approached an instructor to change a grade at some point during their college career? All right. Well, you've already said that it's only yes. 1% of the yes. grades. Right. So, so what percentage of the students? students? Come on, Trilly. <laughs> <laughs> well, you want to make him go first? I, no, like, I know there's some suspect arithmetic right. coming when here. You Come make on. somebody like, go yeah. first, so the price is right. You're always in the better position. Well, I mean, it <laughs> All you have to do is on... multiply by the number of courses, right? Well, <laughs> right. Or, well, that's true. And, and it does somebody do it more than once on average? <sighs> Come on, I don't know. All right. Very few. Come on, 40%. Wait, what? That's what they said, 40%. This is this is self-report, okay? This is self-report. So it's not like, uh, it does, it does. And this is why some of this stuff, the self-report stuff gets a little, yeah, agree. a little hanky. All right, surveys showed little gender differences there. However, males asked for regrades in a larger number of classes, okay? And their request patterns persist throughout the semester. Okay. So even if instructors change grades for males and females at the same rate, the outcome may still favor males because they ask more frequently. Wait, was right? 1% of grades? Grades were asked to be changed or actually that were, were were changed oh, at the end of the semester. At the end, at the end of the semester, after being asked, after and only end. at the end of the semester. Okay, this right. other question: We don't like actually know whether they were asked throughout. Sorry, on right. the on okay, the on the earlier data, right? But still, yes, that's right. And we don't. And this could be for like any given test, right? And those two data sets aren't linked. Anyway, finally, they dig into another. Gets pot- by us. Pot- I know you guys are sharp. Another potential driver, which is a controlled online experiment. All right, they're really trying to like figure out what's going yeah. on. Uh, it's sort really of compli- care about this. It's sort of complicated, but they asked students a bunch of IQ questions. All right, and then they grade their responses with errors on purpose. Mm. 
And then the students, mon- so the students get a monetary award depending on how, on, on what grade they ultimately receive on the task. And so um, the award totals like $5 to 35 bucks. Okay. It's not like a ton of money. All right. After each question, they ask to assign a probably, they're asked, okay, do you think your answer was correct? The one you just gave. And then they're given money based on their correct answers. Plus they get bonus money if their grades extend a correct threshold. They can request a regrade of a question at varying cost. But all this stuff, it affects how much they get paid. All right, bottom line, they find that like the administrative data, like the survey data, males have a stronger propensity to ask for a regrade when they give these IQ Mm -hmm. questions, both in cases where it makes economic sense for them to do so and in cases where it does not, (laughs) meaning now they're starting to lose money. What are you saying? (laughs) Still saying, I'm going to take the risk that my answer might be right or wrong. Anyway, for instance, when the regrade costs, it costs them 50 cents to change, okay, Mm -hmm. to potentially get their answer changed. 47% of males will ask for that regrade, just 36% of females Mm. with the risk, you know, involved. In the end, they study the responses of participants. They study all these data, collect them together. They find that underconfidence, uncertainty in their abilities, perceived downside risk, and the five big personality traits among them, I forgot what the big five mm. were. Did you guys remember that? Oh, I remember. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't up. name them, but yeah. yes. Extroversion sure. and neuroticism mm-hmm. are two of them. Explained mm-hmm. up to 50% of the gender difference in regrade asking. Oh my gosh, finally get oh. to the end of this thing. I'm like, what do we make of all this? Their takeaway was that we should make regrade policies explicit so as not to disadvantage females. I'm sitting here thinking about like, why are we talking about like just the whole thing of asking for a regrade to begin with mm-hmm. the potential for the grade inflation for the squeaky wheels? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know. I feel like some of the study was just kind of off point, but yeah. anyway, ooh, that was it. Ooh. Wow. Right. I mean, we're, <laughs> I mean, you're right. I mean, I was joking about this, but the fundamental question sort of, is this, is this an important question or is this something right. from the policy? But once they go down this road, they certainly, man, they, they really worked hard on finding out some <laughs> <Yeah>. answers. <laughs> they did. And it is they interesting. Did. I mean, right. There should be explicit policies. There should be either. Should there? Well, either you say, look, we're not going to have regrading or there's going to be some kind of appeals process yeah. that you can go through. That's very so, clear. I mean, I taught at the UVA Sidelight Campus once upon a time. I had a student at least every course request a regrade. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's like it happens. I mean, when you're at the higher ed level, like, you know, it happens pretty frequently. And so, yeah, I mean, it feels like maybe this should be a little bit more transparent. You know, you're allowed to ask for, you're not. If, right. you know, what it's kind of like a, a classroom teacher, like some teachers allow you to retake a test literally like mm-hmm. they allow that sometimes because mm-hmm. they think I mean we're, we've been talking a lot of grades yeah. around here they yeah, think I'm one of those teachers actually. you know like you study again you study harder you yeah. can retake the test but some students don't I mean you know what I mean so it seems to be like it's a little bit more transparency could be a good thing interesting I mean it's the broader issue yeah it seems a little niche to me too Mike but I mean the broader mm. issue of like just teacher sort of student pressure on teachers is interesting to me right like because that's something every teacher Mm-hmm. deals with back to our point earlier about mm-hmm. great inflation right? right like it's one of many pressures right mm-hmm. you know it is interesting and, and there's also this question about is this kind of behavior that we want to encourage students to partake in or not mm-hmm. right. right on the one right. hand you're like uh these grade grubbing boys or men mm-hmm. darn it on the other hand it turns out that this kind of behavior probably does help people get paid more right. or yeah. probably helps them get uh deal with Could. you know certain service providers and so maybe, you know, th- this could be considered one of those social emotional skills, you know, when to turn on the, uh, well, you know, when, when to be a pain in the butt right. and yeah. uh, demanding uh, and when not. Yeah. 
Sure. <laughs> that's why I said it's as it's as simple as the squeaky wheel gets the grease. You know, totally, like I that's kind of like an old saying, but you know, maybe, yeah. I didn't maybe. totally follow the part about uh, about the, the the sort of simulation. Was the theory that men are sort of more risk takers? Is that that's what I was reading okay. through it? Right. Yeah, because there was money involved, and yeah. it seemed to me like that that, was that one hidden. did re- remind me of instant replay in football. Oh, that, reminded me uh, of that you, that you have to uh, you know if if you ask for an instant replay and it doesn't go your way you lose a timeout Ooh, so uh you know there's there's costs involved (laughs) but we digress that is all the time we've got for this week so Uh until next week i'm david griffith and i'm mike patchouli of the thomas b fordham institute signing the education gapfly show is a production of the thomas b fordham institute located in washington dc for more information visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org